Hey, how you doing? My name is Eric Payne, and welcome to my Patreon page. So I am currently the host of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Your support here in this community is going to do the following. It's going to allow me to produce exclusive content for the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. It's also going to allow me to launch a bunch of other content series. Life of a Divorced Dad, Fatherhood in Black, and something that I'm very excited about, a docu-series called Extraordinary People. Additionally, your support on this page will give you access to a quarterly subscription box and you're going to get first dibs and the cheapest prices on tickets for live events. Now, of course, nothing is live at this point, but when the world opens back up, things will be live. So in the meantime, they're going to be virtual events and they're going to be very fun. I want to have them. They're going to be very fun. Did I say fun? Yeah, very fun. Yeah, that's well, we're going to have fun. Stay tuned. Hope to see you on the page. Thank you. I rush out into the madness, that soul-stirring sadness we call the world today, and I found it raining. I maintain a steady beat to the patter that pitters, away all the senseless chatter that scatters the illuminations and dreams that make men kings over large and small things. I think back and I tarry on, down the street where the corner's all wrong, with its soot and its ashes everything clashes. There's no harmony of green, or melody of blue, or any other hue, for that matter. The patter simply scatters the soot, collected there, right there, over there, by the donut shop, where the coffee's hot and nice, most times. The hiss of the brush of leaves against the patter is a wonderful beat to set my stomp as I romp through the playthings of my daydreams causing the whole world to think about far off places not confined by small men's spaces, freezing moments in time to reflect on the prospect of respect for self and others. As the world washes down will we ever discover how beautiful this place really could be if you just be you and I'd simply be me. The mute brought on by the hush of the patter soothes the concerns that really don't matter. This moment is mine, not soon to shatter as I'm blessed by the caress of the pitter patter. Welcome to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. After getting his master's degree and getting cursed out, his second master's and getting kicked out, Eric Payne decided to pursue his doctorate and getting his life right and staying in his own lane. But upon getting all his degrees, he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape. Eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTech beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. October came and went. It came and went with a blink. And then came November. I was still unemployed. I still had money. My severance was there. My unemployment was still there. 
But because I was an avid and active tither, I genuinely believe that money was just starting to come to me from a lot of different places. And although I was comfortable with it, I was starting to grow uneasy because I had been going on now for going on almost five months without employment. And my concern as a 40 plus black man that is degreed to the degree that I am is that me being outside the workforce like this made me mm, unattractive, not palatable or potentially dangerous. Either I was overqualified or there was something wrong with me. And I knew that just because that's just ba that's just basic bias, regardless of race. That's just basic bias when you get to a certain age and you are unemployed. So I began to struggle with the idea of becoming an entrepreneur, which it seems like everyone in Atlanta is, and finding finding work. But in the meantime, in between time, I was reading books. I was working out like. It was going out of business as if I was being paid to work out. And I was really getting to know me. That adventure that I speak about constantly of getting to know me. This was all forced upon me. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a chance to avoid me because I had nothing but time on my hands. And I could have, I guess, farted that time away and played video games or watched movies nonstop. But I just kind of worked on me. And because I wasn't sleeping around, for lack of a better way to put it, the way I was in the summertime, that extra time that I had during the day that might have gone to a certain lunch to someone for their lunch break or whatever, all of that was gone. So there was just me and my house and the time that I had between the time that I picked her up and the time that I dropped her off. And when I didn't have her, all I had was time on my hands. Part of me was scared to get back to work. Part of me was like, well, look, these jobs keep not panning out for me. So if they're continuing to not pan out for me, I mean, why is that? What, it, like, what am I doing? What's wrong? What's happening? What's causing this? Am I, am I bad? Am I not good? Am I doing something wrong? And I think that there was a certain degree of imposter syndrome or feeling of inadequacy that began to creep up inside of me that uh, so many people middle-aged, people of color, so many people struggle with that because the world that we live in, you're constantly having to compete to be good enough. And if you do not succeed, especially in the job market, you are essentially told, oh, it's because there was a better fit. Oh, you weren't a match. Oh, we were looking for someone with more qualifications. Um, And then they follow up with a, but, you know, we'll keep it on file, but we love you. You know, not but we love you. What am I talking about? Um, Oh, but we'll keep your resume on file. Oh, but we wish you much success. But what I think people, what I think, and I understand that that's all legal and, you know, making sure their bases are covered and so on and so forth. But what I think is being missed in an emotional intelligence, from an emotional intelligence standpoint, these jobs and covering off on all the things they need to cover off on in these explanation letters, not feedback, but explanation letters, like the explanation email. Feedback is something different and something you just have to live with. But when you get that, that letter, that email, that, you know, oh, that form email that covers them off on whatever it is that they are responsible for or potentially legally bound to, they're subliminally communicating that you're inadequate, you may not be good enough, and that there's someone better out there than you. Now, I mean, okay, that's 
reality that there's always someone better out there. But if you start to hear that over and over and over again, and the job market is a numbers game, it begins to wear you down. And if you don't have the means to get a career coach or an interview coach or a resume coach, those kind of things, it really begins to mess with you psychologically. Communicating to the person that doesn't get picked that they're not good enough. And if that person is hearing that enough times, they start to embrace it and can collapse in on themselves. And that lack of belief that they are good enough begins to show up in subsequent interviews, show up in cover letters. The same is true for relationships. And that's why so many people just stay, stay away. Because the same is true for relationships. You get told a no, you get told no enough times, you begin to think something's wrong with you. Things don't work out for one reason or another. You begin to think it's you. You're alone and can't seem to stop being alone. You begin to believe it's you. But it's not you. It's just that whatever is happening at that particular period in time is not for you. It's not for you. And you're not for it. And that's a good thing. The worst thing you can do is be in a relationship, situationship, job. If you are somewhere where you do not belong, the only thing that will come of that is pain and additional trauma that you don't need. When you are getting rejections from jobs, keep trying. I know what they're saying, but the bigger picture is keep trying, keep trying, keep working, keep refining, keep getting better. Not better according to their stupid standards, better according to yours. Keep getting better, keep working, keep striving, keep pushing. You've got this, I promise you, you've got this. Being alone surfaced so many things for me. One of the main things that it surfaced was that the solitude caused me to wonder what to do. You know, all these children that we have, for those of you who are parents, for those of us who are parents, we listen all day long about how our kids can't wait to grow up. Shoot, I couldn't wait to grow up. And now I'm grown and I wake up every day one wishing somebody could tell me what to do. Not like job-wise, like period. Get out of bed. Go brush your teeth. Do this, do this, do this. I wish I had somebody mapping out my day for me. More days than not. Fairy tale wish. I wish I had someone telling me what to do and how to do it and how to get through it. So what was surfaced for me in the solitude, in the quietude, in the space by myself, the space that I couldn't escape from because I really had nowhere to go other than the local co coffee shops because I wasn't willing to spend money anywhere because my money was limited. Yeah, I had a big pot but that pot was gonna run out eventually. So what it surfaced for me was this. I had been living my life in accordance with what people were telling me to do and how to do it. The jobs that I had, the way that I dressed, the way that I conducted myself, the circles that I moved around in, even the places that I ate. They were all told to me, either by friends, by my ex-wife, by society, by what I thought I should be doing, being totally by myself and technically having nowhere to go created this space for me to wonder why am I doing all these things why have I been doing all these things why are these things not working who am I 
How did I get here at 47 years old and not know how I got here? Well, I wasn't a participant in my life. I was, I mean, I was, but I wasn't. So I was participating in my life only in the idea that I was doing what I was told or I was operating on autopilot, doing the things that I thought I should do, whether it was taught to me as a child, taught to me as a teenager, taught to me as a young adult, or taught to me in my marriage, or taught to me, like I said, by societal pressures or social media. But now in the solitude of me, I decided, strangely, all of this was divine. It had to have been divine. I decided that I was going to map out who Eric Payne needed to be. For him. Not for, not to get some booty. Not to attract the women. Not to get back at my ex-wife. Not to show the world that I can. But here I had, and I didn't come by this 100% by myself. At the time I was listening to Joel Olstein, And he had said something. Like, if you aren't happy with the results in your life, now's the time to take stock and do new, do things in a new and different way. Well, I had the opportunity to do that without distraction, and that's what I did. I began to take stock of everything that I was, why I was that way, do my best to attempt to release the people that I felt contributed to that, understand my role in that as a people pleaser. I have a people pleaser gene. I say it all the time. I'm a recovering people pleaser. So as a result of being a recovering people pleaser, the urge to Please by doing, typically at the expense of self and typically at the insistence of something that someone else would like me to do is very strong. Not these days, but it used to be. So understanding what my role is in all of what my role was in all of that. So I say that to say I'm not going to blame all those people. Not anymore. I did for quite a period of time. But them telling me what to do, all these things, this bullet list of people and things and places that told me what to do would not have been effective had I not been willing to do it. What made me willing? My desire to please. So the first thing that I had to really, 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 really route out in me was that understand what it meant to be a people pleaser, how it had shown up to my detriment and how I could either use it for my good or figure out a way not to repress it, but to understand it and to override it when it came up. And that was my assignment that I gave myself for the rest of the year. for something new. My parents were none the wiser and I intended to keep them that way for as long as I could. They didn't need the stress. My dad was struggling with his, what was very clearly to me, dementia. My mom was struggling with her denial of that. And oddly enough, she was starting to look thin and gaunt and it was dismissed by most as her being consumed with my father's care as his wife and caregiver they had been together for 
50 years, which was definitely a nail in my heart considering that my marriage only lasted seven and a half. Happy for them, of course, because they're my parents, but wondering what was wrong with me. The last thing I was going to do as I traveled to Chicago was trouble my parents with the stuff of their grown-ass son. So I flew home, as I always do, with a little bit of trepidation and a little bit of woe and worry in my heart. But that was because I had such an interesting experience with my parents growing up. When I was in college and I used to travel home from school, once I stopped taking the train or driving or whatever and I started flying regularly, get to the airport. And my parents, you know, they've been together forever. So they kind of don't get along. Or they do and they don't, you know. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. They love each other. They ride for each other. But I'd say 60 to 70% of the time, they're at each other's throats. So my parents would pick me up from the airport when I was in college and then start arguing over where the car was parked. I mean, I just got off the plane. I'm trying to chill out. I want to go to my favorite restaurants from when I was a kid in high school. I don't care where the car is parked. When I'm in Chicago, I don't care about where the car is parked. When I land in Chicago, I am thinking about two things, three things, and three things only. Deep dish pizza, whether that's Giordano's or Gino's East. My favorite Vienna sausage hot dog spots. One spot on Taylor Street and a couple other spots stashed across town. And my favorite burger joint that I grew up eating burgers at uh, from middle school through high school. I have friends that talk about me saying that if I didn't work out, I'd probably be 300 pounds. Uh, it's not that bad, but uh, I do like food. And I do base my life around when I'm eating, how I'm eating, and where I'm eating. So the, so the remedy that I began to realize to fix this thing that I was experiencing when my parents came to pick me up was to get them to stop picking me up. All my friends from high school were grown. So they picked me up from the airport. They start, I started getting them to pick me up from the airport. We're all grown. We're all dads. We're all married or divorced or single, whatever. We're all mature enough to be reliable and responsible. So they picked me up from the airport. And it was something that gave my mother great dismay because my mother, as far as I'm concerned, I could be 65, 70 years old. And in her mind, I'm still five. And I understand it. There is a endearing thing that I have to that. But I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not five. I'm not 10. I'm not 12. So one of my boys who's ultra vegan picked me up and ultra woke and we went all over Chicago and we talked. We talked about veganism. We talked about polygamy. We talked about Africans in America. We talked about everything. It was a wonderful conversation. I'm delighted by these conversations. And that's what, and it, it's a testament to friendship. It is amazing to me that people that met in high school, probably under the worst of circumstances, talking about each other, being at odds with each other, being in competition with each other, somehow are able to maintain bonds. And they might get frayed over the years. Let's say college days, college separates us. And maybe college is the thing that makes it work, right? You get separated from all of that stuff that you dealt with in the hallways and in the locker rooms and, and whatever teams you were playing on. And then as an adult, you come back together and you say, 
hopefully, sometimes, fortunately, you are able to say, man, that stuff was so stupid. Like, what were we doing? And then we laugh about everything because it was stupid. Facebook actually reconnected me with a good number of members from my past because I wasn't getting along with anybody by the time I graduated. And it wasn't like I was fighting with anybody. I just wasn't speaking to anybody. And I don't think anybody was speaking to me because I was a late bloomer, to be perfectly honest with you, and under strict rule of my parents. I mean, they cared about me. They loved me. They didn't want any harm to come my way. But that led to me being ostracized and not being one of the cool kids in high school. So my boy picked me up. We went around town and eventually he dropped me home and I was so happy to see my mom and so happy to see my dad. But my mom was featherweight. I could almost, I almost picked her up when I hugged her. And yeah, I work out and yeah, I like to think that I'm a little strong, but I shouldn't be able to pick somebody up with a casual hug. And it deeply concerned me because I could feel her bones in my arms. My father had declined a bit since I last laid eyes on him. He knew who I was. He was happy to see me. He shook my hand. He smiled. He told his usual dad joke that he always did, but he was old and he was feeble and he was not the strong man that I had once known, the one that I learned how to be strong from. He wasn't hauling bags of concrete over his shoulder. He wasn't talking about, he wasn't trying to DIY everything in the house, whether he was DIYing it right or wrong. He was just sitting there and he walked slow. And it was hard for him to get up out of his chair, his favorite chair. I mean, the chair was too low to the ground anyway. The springs were had been gone before I probably graduated college. But I hugged them, and I was glad to be home, and I talked to them, and I watched TV with them, and we prepared for Thanksgiving. My mom, for the first time in the history of us, was hosting Thanksgiving. And she had gotten some catering, and she had ordered some, and she had bought tables, and tablecloths, and everything and she was so excited to be hosting the family because our house while dad was a little bit more aware was closed off and no one was allowed in because he just didn't want anybody there it was his little castle and he had his two little plebeians myself and my mom that were under his for lack of a better way to put it under his auspices and under his control Thanksgiving dinner was full of love, laughter, loudness, and food. There was so much food, as there should be, as there typically is at most people's Thanksgivings. She was also accommodating the crowd. The usual suspects showed up. Some additional uh, cousins and relatives that normally don't come to Thanksgiving came. And in general, I come from a very large family. Although I'm an only child, and there's a couple of other only children in the family, most of the family members are multiple siblings, and my parents themselves have 18 siblings between the both of them. So it got loud. It got hot very quickly. I wound up having to help my mom set up the arrangement for how to get food and so on and so forth because since she hadn't arranged things before, she made everything pretty. But that wasn't necessarily functional. And let me correct myself. You can totally make catered arrangements attractive. But you can't do that with limited space. We did the typical 
black American household thing. We prayed for almost 30 minutes. Well, maybe not 30 minutes, but I tell you this much. I was looking around the room while everybody was praying because in attendance that evening were three sisters, three of my cousins that are sisters, and they just happened to be prayer warriors. And prayer warriors are people that are very, 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 very entrenched in the faith of Christianity. And they dedicate their lives to praying for people. They have a prayer hotline that goes every morning, I think, at 6 a.m. But they are good. They pray. They are, ooh, they are on fire for the Lord, and they pray. I mean, they're real people. They get upset. They, you know, they catch attitudes. They'll cut you down in a second. Not with curse words, but they'll cut you down in a second. But man, let me tell you, when they pray, they praying for everything. The, the concrete on the sidewalks, the bark on the trees, the grass, the blades of grass that ain't even alive because it's November, or at least they're in hibernation. They were praying for everything. The hands that prepared the food, the people that made the ingredients somewhere in another country that came to the country so that you could prepare the food. Everything. It was a lot. And I was looking around the room, as I always do. I mean, I'm a prayerful individual. I just don't do marathon prayers. I don't, I run out of words after a while. Me, of all people, run out of words. Once everybody was settled down and eating dinner and having fun and enjoying themselves, I got into a conversation with these same three prayer warrior cousins. There was something that the family didn't really know. I think they assumed, but they didn't really know. My ex-wife just kind of stopped coming to everything. And then my daughter started coming with me, but it was only just the two of us. My son was old enough that he could go wherever he wanted, and every opportunity he had to go to Chicago, come to Chicago, he just stopped. He just wouldn't come. He used to come all the time. But once he got older, he stopped coming. Nothing against us, nothing against me, nothing against my parents. I think he's just, you know, typical older boy who just wants to run all over the place because he doesn't even, he wasn't even home for Thanksgiving with his mom on this particular Thanksgiving. He was with his boys somewhere. So the bottom line is this. The fact that I was divorced was just something that wasn't talked about in my household in Chicago, Illinois, at the Payne residence. And because they weren't talking about it, I don't believe anybody else really knew about it at all. My dad, you know, in and out whether I got divorced or not, but my mom didn't talk about it. So I'm at the dining room table and I'm talking to the, the sisters and I'm telling them my story. And the story that I'm telling them is this story the story of my podcast. I'm telling them episode one, two, three, four, and five. But I'm focused more on episode one, where I'm just going through the heartache and the misery and the pain and the unwillingness to let go and how that was eating me alive and how that was preventing me from moving forward and how I couldn't function because I couldn't accept the fact that this woman someone that I love for, you know, however long, no longer wanted to be in relationship with me, no longer wanted to be married with me, no longer wanted to share the role under the same roof of parenting our children with me. And I used a huge word at Thanksgiving. I said, I had to accept reality that I was divorced in order to move forward. My mother, who was listening in on the conversation but not exactly participating, cut in and said, oh, I have a, such a hard time accepting it. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, what are you talking about? You didn't even come to Atlanta when I was going through the divorce. It's not like you were one of those moms that, you know, comes in and wrecks shop because something's happening to your baby. None of it affected you. I'm sure it affected her emotionally. I know it affected her emotionally. No one wants to see. There's a ripple effect that comes with divorce, of course. But you were not impacted in such a way that my acceptance 
should have preceded yours. And therein lies the rub, acceptance. How much more could we do, could we accomplish, could we get through, could we achieve if we simply accepted where we were and moved in that space? Because if you accept where you are, you can navigate the landscape of where you are. If you're in a pot of boiling water, well, you know to get out. If you can't accept it, you're going to get cooked. And that's the only metaphor I need to use because that's life. We spend so much time in relationships, jobs, and everything else trying to force our way and unwilling to see what is literally happening in front of us because we want our way. And once I became released of that, life became so much easier. Life isn't fair and life is not easy, but my ability to navigate life became extremely easy because the phrase, it is what it is, now holds incredible gravity in my life because it is what it is and it's nothing more than what it is. It isn't what it could be. It isn't what it should be. It isn't what I wish it would have been had I done X, Y, 35,000 things that I didn't do or another person didn't do or life didn't do or society didn't do. It is exactly what it is. Thanksgiving eventually came to an end. I was actually impressed with myself because I didn't eat too much. Thanks to the whole spin working out thing, I did eat a lot of ice cream and pie. Hung out with friends before I left, and I headed back to Atlanta. Having experienced something so small, but so great. The divine reminder that acceptance, not approval of your circumstances, but acceptance of your circumstances. Acceptance of where you are and who you are is everything. This has been episode four of season three of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard, I have a small ask of you. I'd ask that you share this with a few friends, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to if you haven't already, and that if and if you have a little extra time and you spend time on Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, preferably a five-star review, because the more positive reviews I receive, the more my content gets pushed forward for gen pop to see general population to see you have to search out dating after divorce to find me or eric Payne to find me but the better the reviews the more the reviews the more my content gets pushed up as marquee content and i want to do that so that i can you know share my story with others share this testimony that god's given me with the world and help people because ultimately that's my goal and as always be great be beautiful be wonderful be incredible be authentic be genuine be forgiving be patient be loving, be kind, be secure. But if you're insecure, be okay with that and work towards being secure. Be challenged, be willing, be able, be determined, be strong in determination, be focused, be exact. But if you're not exact right now, that's okay. Work towards it. Be thorough. Be thorough with the practice of being thorough with yourself. Leave no stone unturned when working on you. Don't hold back, don't half-ass. Because the only person that suffers from that is you. And what's most important to me, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, be accepting so that you can operate in the space, the present day space that you're in so that you can set up your future self. And above all else, be you.